From the heartland of America and the gateway to the West, good morning, good evening, wherever you you may be across the nation, around the world. I'm George Norrie. This is Coast to Coast AM. Later tonight, the spirit world. Here's what's happening. Tragedy in Utah. Eight family members, including five children, found dead in a southern Utah home, killed by their father. Officials in the city of Enoch said that Michael Haight, 42 years old, took his own life after killing his wife, mother-in-law, and the couple's five children. Children raged in age from 4 to 17, including three girls, two boys. Enoch, small town of about 8,000 people. My God. Ukraine said no to an announcement by Russian President Vladimir Putin of a 36-hour ceasefire to mark Orthodox Christmas, saying there would be no truce until Russia withdraws its invading forces from occupied land. The Kremlin said Putin had ordered a ceasefire from the midday on Friday after a call for a Christmas truce from the Patriarch of Moscow, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. Vladimir Putin apparently is terminally ill with cancer and will die soon, according to Ukraine's military intelligence head. His name is Krylo Bugadnov. Without providing evidence, he has none, said he knows the Russian leader's death is imminent due to an ongoing illness with cancer. And again, he has provided no evidence. China defended its handling of its raging COVID-19 outbreak after U.S. President Joe Biden voiced concern and the World Health Organization said Beijing was underreporting virus deaths. Meanwhile, here we go again. A new XBB.1.1 variant of COVID is the most transmittable yet detected, according to a senior World Health Organization official. The variant, which is a subvariant of Omicron, is confirming to be spread in 25 countries, including the United Kingdom and the U.S. Investigative reporter Christian Wild with us. Do I have to say here we go again, Christian? Yeah, there is no end. Now, being that this virus initially came to us from China, let's look at the risks they are finding in their own country before it makes its way to us here in America. A couple of weeks ago, George, I was reading a report of passengers on the plane leaving Hong Kong who were tested for the virus before departure. And then they were tested again when the plane landed several hours later. The number of new viral cases for COVID had increased 50%. Does that give us an idea of how vulnerable the risk is that we're dealing with and why even casual exposure is not to be taken lightly by any of us? The virus is now becoming prominent in countries all over the world, including the UK, as you just mentioned. And yes, We can get the virus and its variants two, three, and even more times. And what you share with us tonight, George, indicates that the newest variant is particularly more easily transmissible. And for many of us who have been fortunate to not have gotten the virus so far, with this new variant, it still puts us at a higher risk. When we consider the latest statistics, we might agree this is not to be taken lightly. No, not lightly. When the actual case numbers as of today, George, according to the World Health Organization, 665 million cases worldwide 
and 7 million actual deaths. It is to be taken seriously. George, a handful more studies have continued to explore and report on how the antiviral properties of turmeric in general, not just mine, are proving helpful in protecting against this virus. Does this mean more masks and we're going back to the old days? It looks like we are, like it or not. All right, my friend. Kristen Wiles' website, myheartbook.com. Amazon.com is laying off more than 18,000 employees, the biggest reduction in its history, and the latest sign that a tech industry slump is deepening. The chief executive officer out there announced the cuts. Not good news at all. Kevin Randall's with us with his weekly UFO report, and he'll be with us for the next two hours talking about some UFO-breaking stories. Kevin, what do you got for us this week? Well, good evening, George. Hi there, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, and I always like to say hi when we begin these things. (laughs) Well, that's good. Well, for decades I have suggested that the report of another bright light crossing the night sky is not going to add anything to our body of knowledge about UFOs. With other witnesses, or without other witnesses, and without corroborating evidence, there isn't much we can do with such a case, not to mention that a light can be any number of mundane and terrestrial things. If there's another chain of evidence, such as an independent recordings of anomalies, then the case takes on added importance. If radar is involved or if there are photographs, there is something to provide additional clues to the identity of the craft or the object. This is where MADAR comes in because it is a system that detects these anomalies, some that are well associated with UFO sightings. On May 2nd of last year, a female witness saw a couple of bright red floodlights above a tree line. She asked her boyfriend if he saw the lights, and he took a quick look. The UFO was described as a matte black, large, futuristic-looking aircraft. It was moving so slowly that it seemed to be almost hovering. The Thompson Station at Node 33 in Tennessee, about 60 miles from the sighting, showed the sighting from about five minutes before to five minutes after the event. There was multi-sensor variance, including a compass deviation suggesting a strong electromagnetic field. On July 22nd of 2022 in McKinney, Texas, the witnesses were traveling from Allen, Texas, to their home when one of the daughters saw a gray, solid-looking, cigar-shaped object heading to the north. There were 10 points along the side in a row that were emitting light. The 17-year-old daughter tried to get her camera working as they raced north looking for a place to get off the highway. They stopped the car, leaped out, but the UFO was gone. They didn't see it accelerator vantage. It was just gone. The MADAR site at Wiley, Texas, only 17 miles away, recorded several anomalies at the time of the sighting. There was a company deviation, compass deviation, which I mentioned because of the EM effect. There were other readings as well, but that moves into a somewhat technical aspect of the case. The sighting is part of the MUFON case management system as well. Finally, on May 15th of last year in Oregon City, Oregon, an older couple was closing up the house when the wife saw a strange object to the south. She called her husband and then both went to get their glasses. The UFO paused over a high-voltage power line and then moved toward the witnesses. The UFO was round and had a bright, fiery red-orange color. They also saw a triangular pattern of lights on the object. The UFO was about 100 feet above the ground, and it made no noise. The witness made, it, made a point that they lived in a somewhat rural environment so that they would have heard any sound from the UFO, and the sighting lasted two to three minutes. The MADAR site, which was only 13 miles from the sighting location, registered the anomalies at the same time as the sighting. 
The witnesses were interviewed and provided additional information. Given the length of the sighting, the spikes in the data at the exact time of the sighting, this is a compelling case. And that does it for tonight, George. All right, and just hang by because you're going to be our guest for the next couple hours, Kevin, as we talk about the government and UFOs next on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. Lots of things happening in the year 2022 with UFOs, but what about 2023? What will it fare? Kevin Randall with us has more than 45 years' experience studying the UFO phenomenon in all various incarnations. His training by the Army and the Air Force provides him with a keen insight into the operations and protocols of the military, their investigations into UFOs and into a phenomenon that has puzzled people for more than a century. He appears weekly on our program with updates on UFO activity, and his latest book is called Understanding Roswell, which we'll talk about as well. Kevin, welcome back. Yeah, it's been a long time since I talked to you, George. Do you think 2023 is going to be a breakthrough for us in the field of ufology? I would like to say yes. I would like to be positive, but given the history of the UFO phenomenon, I think that we're going to just see the same things we've seen for the last 75 years. I call it Twining 2.0. General Twining was the officer at the Air Material Command in 1947 when the first sightings were seen here in the United States. And he wanted to establish a um, priority project with an investigation into what was going on because they really didn't know. And it was supposed to be transparent, but it was a classified project. They said the name was Project Saucer, it was really Project Sign, and that sort of thing. We move now into this environment. We're in the same point we were at that time. The, the government, the, the military, the Congress seems to be interested in UFOs, and yet we seem to see the same sort of dodges that we saw back then. Um, they promised a lot of things, and then the, the road sort of shifts, and, and we don't get the information we need. So I, I think that's where we're going to stay in 2023, we're not going to see a lot of progress. Kevin, with the late Stanton Friedman gone now, I, I really believe this has pushed you way to the forefront of uh, the Roswell case. You were tops anyway, but the, the, this you're, you're almost standing alone out there. What do you think happened in July of 1947? I lean toward the extraterrestrial. I think uh, when we peel away all the nonsense that has surfaced about it, and there's been a lot, and I've contributed some of it myself, simply because you, you, you interview people, you think they're telling you the truth, you learn later that they're, they're not really as uh, um, honest as, as you would hope to have been. But when we boil it down to the, the basics, uh, there are just some things that are inexplicable. We have no terrestrial explanation for what fell at Roswell. The Air Force explanation of Project Mogul simply doesn't work. And what I do not understand is the skeptical community is supposed to be questioning everything. If you have a, a good sighting, they question the, the, the research, they question the methodology, they question the evidence. When you move to the other side of the coin, when you have an explanation, they don't question it. Project Mogul, which is the balloon arrays that were supposedly launched in New Mexico in 1947 that caused the, the, the debris field, uh, when you look at the documentation, it says the, there was no flight number four. It never flew. It, it didn't go, so it couldn't have dropped the debris. And yet they never questioned that. They accept that as legitimate. So I look at the, at the case, and I, I say I have seen no terrestrial explanation that explains all the information that we've gathered about the Roswell case. There's just something missing from that. 
There may be some kind of classified project we don't know about, but I can't imagine what it would be after 50 years that would harm national security if they announced it. One of the logical things was uh, the 509th Bomb Group in Roswell, New Mexico, was the only atomic strike force in the world at the time. Now, according to the information I've been able to find, and, and this came from Jesse Marcel, Jr. and, and mm-hmm. other people, the um, atomic bomb at that time, the, the, the size and shape, the look of it was classified. And so had they inadvertently dropped uh, a mock-up as they were practicing with the atomic bombs because they were huge, that would have been something to cover up in 1947. But in today's environment, who cares? If they don't look like that anymore, the information that you would gather by seeing it would be of use, no use to anybody. And we actually have um, reports of them dropping actual atomic bombs on places. I think they dropped one in Albuquerque in 1957, and we know about that stuff. So we have no explanation, a terrestrial explanation that has been offered that I find reasonable to explain the Roswell case, and that kind of shifts us into the extraterrestrial. Are we still waiting for reports from NASA to Congress, or did we get everything we were expecting? We're not getting much of anything. I didn't um, think so. Remember, they were supposed to produce a big um, report in June of, of what 2021, June 25th of 2021. It was like nine pages, and it was just absolutely useless. And then he said, well, we're going to update it in 90 days, but they never did. And then we move into 2022, and they're supposed to be doing this, that, and the other thing. And we get a, in May we get that um, briefing at the Pentagon. And like many others, I signed on and watched the whole 80 minutes of the briefing. And they really, the two uh, uh, people being interviewed didn't seem to know much about UFOs. The congressmen and women who were interviewing them seemed to know more about UFOs than they did. And we're supposed to be getting more information, but it just never seems to come. I I, I did a book called um, UFOs in the Deep State, and I tried to explain how you can get an order from the government, the president, for example, and not respond to it. And what, what you can do is just delay it by saying, you know, there's a lot of pieces to this thing. We've got to pull them all together. Let's get a comprehensive report to you, and we will get it to you in X number of weeks. And somehow it just never gets done. And the next thing you know, the guy who was asking for that, he's now out of the government and somebody else moves in. So there's always all kinds of ways to dodge the questions and delay the information. And that's what we're seeing today. We, we're supposed to get this information, but it didn't show up. We're supposed to get this information, but it didn't show up. We're in that point where there just simply is nothing um, being forwarded to us as it's of any benefit to us. Kevin, did you know the late uh, Apollo astronaut Edgar Mitchell? I had met him once or twice. I didn't really know him on a personal level, but yes, I, I, I had had an opportunity to, to meet with him. Sure, I knew him knew him well, and uh, he has told me he he under any circumstances over the years before he passed away that we were being visited by intelligent extraterrestrials. And uh, he admitted, he said, George, I never saw anything going to the moon or anything like that. I didn't see anything on the moon, but I've been told by people in government that I trust that we are being and have been visited. And I believe the guy. There's no reason to, to not believe him. The thing is, you know, I worked with top secret material when, when I was an Air Force officer and an, and an Army officer. I worked with that, and I understand how these things work, and I understand how... Uh, if you don't have a need to know, you're not supposed to share it with other people and that sort of thing. 
But there also comes a point where you're dealing with professionals at the highest levels, and they do tend to share a little bit of information, even though they know they're not supposed to do that, uh, if you ask a direct question. Uh, I think Barry Goldwater was a good example of that. Uh, he had some inside information, and he asked um, uh, LeMay, General LeMay, to see the Blue Room that alleged at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where they kept this extra-crusted material. And I've, I've actually got a letter from, from Goldwater explaining that, and he, that it was the only time that LeMay ever got mad at him and told him not only, not only no, but hell no, and never ask me again or I'll have you court-martialed. So there Jeez. is some secret going on there that is at the highest levels classified, and there's very little talk about it uh, outside the core of the, the, the people you know. So I have no doubt that, that, that people that Edgar Mitchell knew um, would have shared information with him if he asked the questions, thinking, you know, here's a guy we can trust with that information. Kevin, what got you involved in all of this? I always blame my mother. Blame it on mom, huh? <laughs> she was a science fiction fan, and she uh, you know, read science fiction books which deal with um, alien civilizations and interstellar flight and all of that sort of thing. In fact, she took me a movie when I was a little kid, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, and that kind of sparked my interest. Um, and so it kind of grew out of there, and from that point on, I... Uh, would read the books about UFOs from uh, the people that you you know. I'm, I'm sure you know, like like uh, of course Brad Steiger, sure, who, who became a very good friend, by the way. We miss him too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Frank Edwards' books. Uh, Frank, um, I think wrote more from memory than he did from notes. So he he often oftentimes got things wrong. The the uh, report he did on the Roswell case in uh, Flying Saucer Serious Business. It's just like a, a page, half a page. He gets virtually everything wrong, other than there was a f rancher involved in it. It was something that fell in Roswell, New Mexico, and the Air Force explained it as uh, uh, some kind of balloon with a device hanging from it. But he got most of the facts wrong. But the real point is he was talking about Roswell back in 1965, 1966. And so, I mean, that all kind of sparked my interest uh, in, in UFOs and uh I, of course, became a science fiction fan as well, so it's sort of a double whammy there. Kevin Brandel with us. We'll take calls with Kevin next hour about UFOs and ufology. Jump on board. Kevin, it seems like things have changed dramatically over the years. We used to have a lot of abduction cases. We used to have a lot of reports of landing pod evidence, burned out spots and stuff. We don't get those anymore. How come? You know, Carl Flock and I used to talk about that before he passed away, and it, it was always it, it seemed like the um, uh, the UFOs had come, gathered the information that they wanted. They they picked up samples of the for, flora and the fauna, uh, and then they took it back to their home world so they could study it at length. Not unlike what we would do in in uh, some environmental studies that we do, and that might explain part of it. But but we also had noticed that that tendency that we don't have the same kind of robust cases that we used to have. Um, Kathleen Martin just uh, announced that she was no longer associating with ufology but had taken her research in a different direction. I've had some correspondence with her about her moving into other arenas. And the other thing that, that strikes me about the abduction phenomenon, if it was as widespread as it was reported, 
it would seem to me that there would be a lot more UFO sightings going on as well. And I think we didn't see that sort of thing, and the logistics kind of get in the way. So it makes you wonder, is there some kind of interdimensional phenomena going mm-hmm. on that accounts for some of this stuff? Which Jacques Vallée would believe. Kevin, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and chat more about this incredible story of ufology. Calls with Kevin Randall next hour. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie back with Kevin Randall. As I mentioned, we will take calls with Kevin next hour here on Coast to Coast. Kevin, I had a guest a few weeks ago, Cyrus Parsa, who was convinced there was an alien abduction plan underfoot by the ETs, but it's to create a hybridization program and get rid of all of us and move them in. What do you think of that? I think, uh, didn't David Jacobs do a book called The yep. Threat a number of years ago that had a similar premise? Same kind of premise, that's right. I, I'm a little skeptical of that that sort of thing, simply because we don't have a lot of evidence. We, we have evidence about alien abduction, of course. I think one of the strongest cases is the Hicks and Parker uh, abduction from Pascagoula in 1973. Um, it, it, there was something that John Mack said a number of years ago which he found it interesting that there seemed to be a matching between the, uh, the researcher and the abductee. In other words, if you had cold calculating aliens, then they seemed to end up with Bud Hopkins. And if you had aliens with an Eastern philosophy, you ended up with John Mack. And if you were talking about the hybrids, then they ended up with David Jacobs. And so there might be something in there that, that, that hints at uh, what you know, we're, we're talking about here, hinting about it going in that direction. But I think, um, I don't think David Jacobs ever suggested, or maybe he did, that, that they were going to replace us with a hybrid. But they were developing the hybrids, to, and they would move a, uh, um, among us, I guess, to kind of direct the, the way we were going and the, the things that we were doing so that the planet would be more uh, conducive to their way of life than it would be to ours, which, of course, then would move us out of that arena, out of the United, out of the world arena. And he has said, though, that he believes that it's a very nefarious purpose that they're out, they're out they're out to no good. And I think that um, I, I think that that John Mack's philosophy was that they were more benevolent than no good, and I think Bud Hopkins saw them more as. Um, being scientifically oriented, gathering their information without uh, concerns with the traumatic effects on the abductees. And then David Jacobs would be that, of that philosophy. So, I mean, you can kind of pick and choose where you go with this thing. The, the problem is we're dealing with an alien species, and it's kind of hard to um, figure out where they might be going. You know, we talk about the vast interstellar distances and how the speed of light limits our ability to move among the planets. But we, I guess you might say, are sort of a short-lived species. But what if we lived for like a 1,000 years or 5,000 years then, getting on a ship that would take 300 years to get to the next uh, star system wouldn't be that outrageous to us because we have that kind of a lifespan. So there's all kinds of things that we don't know. We're dealing with uh, limited information um, I know when you, you talk to the abductees, they say, well, I've been told this or I've been told that, but I, mm-hmm. I can't release it to you. I've got to keep it uh, under wraps. Or they could be lying to us as well. We just, just don't have enough information to make any kind of really intelligent, 
responses about what their um, motive might be. What do you think of the work of the late Zechariah Sitchin, who believes that a E.T. race called the Anunnaki came to good old planet Earth because they needed gold to sprinkle in their atmosphere to save their planet, and they created a hybrid us as workers, and here we started. What do you think of that? I, 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 I've met Zachariah Stitchin, or I met Zachariah Stitchin a number of years ago, and we talked about some of these. My background in college, my undergraduate work was done in anthropology and archaeology. So I, you know, I had an op- opportunity to look at some of this stuff, the, the um, information coming out of the scientific community. And, and again, we have to be careful with the scientific community because sometimes they get so locked into their points of view that they're not going to look at anything, no matter how benign it might be, if, especially when you get radical like that. Um, but I try to look at all this stuff with an with a open mind and, and look at that. I wonder about the manipulation of our DNA and that sort of thing for those purposes. I mean, I, I, I don't see any reason why, um, if there were uh, alien species coming to Earth, why would they have to take the gold from Earth? Wouldn't it be easier to get it from um, the Oort cloud or the um, um, Kuiper belt? Rather than having to come that this deeply into the um, into the solar system, so um, yeah, I, I look at those sorts of things and, and ask those questions. There may be other factors involved that I'm not aware of that would require them to do that, but yeah, I look at that with a little bit of a skeptical eye, simply because I would like to see additional evidence. But I think that's kind of a um, scientific way to approach it. You know, I'm not going to reject something out of hand because it doesn't fit with my view of the universe at this moment, there may be something that I learned later on that suggests, well, maybe that really is the way things were going. Uh, there are areas of our prehistory that we don't understand how things evolved in it, and it's being changed almost on a daily basis as anthropology and archaeology and paleontology all come to uh, gathering additional information and, and changing our outlook of of the world. And the best example I can think of is, is, well, the dinosaurs went extinct, and we now know, well, they really didn't. They, the, the theropods changed into birds, basically. Yeah. We have dinosaurs today. We just weren't, they don't look like we expected them to look like. So, you know, we just have to look at the way science is changing and where things are being uh, discovered that, that take us in different arenas. Kevin, uh, since 1947, what percent of U.S. presidents do you believe have been informed, advised about the UFO situation? Well, I think that when you look at it, Harry Truman had to know because he was the president at the time of the Roswell crash. Dwight Eisenhower had to know because he was the chief of staff at the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I should say, in 1947. And, and the information would have gone up through the chain of command through through his office, so he would have known. When we get to John Kennedy, um, I don't see any need to tell the president about the UFOs unless something spectacular happened. And, and Kennedy had nothing in his during his administration that, that would have required him to have knowledge of UFOs, and the same thing with Lyndon Johnson. But you can take a look at um, some of the things that have gone on since then, and they, they might have had to brief certain presidents about it. I don't think they briefed them um, if they didn't have to and if the president didn't ask. 
questions. Jimmy Carter asked questions, and that was kind of what I was alluding to before, Mm -hmm. um, him wanting to know what was going on with the UFOs, and he asked his um, director of central intelligence, while Carter was still president-elect, he asked asked, uh, the director of central intelligence, who happened to be George H.W. Bush, about UFOs, and Bush said to him, and I I outlined all this in UFOs in the Deep State, that... um, he wanted to remain on as the director of central intelligence, and Carter said, "Well, I'm having my own guy come in." Uh-huh. And and then Bush said, "Well, you aren't the president yet; you don't have a need to know." How about that? And and he could get away with that because what's he, what, what's Carter going to do? He couldn't fire him because he wasn't president yet. And when he came in, he was going to get fired anyway. So and he was and he was too honest. He or else he could have said, "You're, you're going to be my man when I get in." Yeah. <laughs> but but and, and that and that kind of led to the the idea that. Um, if Jimmy Carter asked the questions, and of course he got distracted with the with the hostage situation in Iran and, and those, that sort of thing, but if he asked the questions, I can see the director of central intelligence or the people who are in charge, the deep state, the guys that remain in the administration from administration to administration to administration, the underlings, not the not the number one guys, but the, the underlings are there forever. And they would say, well, we got to pull this information together. It's going to take us a while. We got to go to this agency and that agency. And somehow it never gets done. And we've seen some of that, like I said before, with the um, what's going on today, where they say, well, we've got to do this report. And I am convinced what happened was when the mandate came down to produce this report in six months, the people in charge figured they're going to forget about it in six months. We don't have to worry about it. And then suddenly in the weeks just prior to the date it was due, uh, the news media and the UFO community began asking questions about mm-hmm. it. Oh, my God, we've got to come up with something. And so they came up with that ridiculous report, and they put it off. For, and it was, we got additional information. We're doing this, that, and the other thing. We've got to put it off. And they just never get the things done. And now we're dealing with, well, NASA may be looking at it, but what are they going to be looking at? We're told that they're not only going to go back to 1996 to look at the information. Well, what about everything that went on before then? I think um, Christopher Mellon said recently that they were really going to go back to 1945, which would have been the Foo Fighters from World War II, and of course the ghost rockets, and then we get into the Roswell case. But it's just all over the board, and you just see how uh, they're manipulating the situation and hoping other things would uh, get in the way of having to worry about this UFO stuff. If it breaks the way we expect it to, the way we want it to, how do you think it'll be announced to us, Kevin? I think I think the aliens are going to have to do it. They're going to have to land in a, such a way and in, in, in a, such a situation that it wow. can be denied. I, that, that's the other thing you learn in intelligence. You know, you, you, you've got this. Almost like the day the Earth stood still, right down there in Washington, D.C. Yes, yes. But, but you have this situation where um, in intelligence, you deny everything. If it's classified, you deny it. Even though the other people may know something about it, you deny it, you deny it, deny it. Knowing full well that the enemy can come out with the information, a good example of this was President Eisenhower denying that we were spying on the Soviets with the U-2 spy planes. He said, no, we're not doing that sort of thing, denying it. And then the Russians showed up with Gary Powers and the wreckage of the U-2, and they said, well, uh, you got us. And I, I think that's where we're going to be with the, with the uh, disclosure of the, uh, the UFO information. It's the aliens are going to decide, we are here, deny it now. You know, we've, we've landed at... Uh, in, in Central Park, or we've landed in, on, on the, um, the mall in Washington, D.C., and there's going to be no denying that, that they're here. It's, I think that's the way it's going to happen. I don't think pressure from 
the population is going to force the government to do anything. They're going to dodge like they've been doing for 75 years, and they're very good at uh, deflecting the attention to something else. I mean, we, we, we see it already with the Navy cockpit videos. We're, we're, we're given these cockpit videos, and they said, this is really anomalous. This is really incredible. We don't know what it is. And now we're hearing, well, it's a, a, a technological glitch in the new um, the technology we've put Yeah, in exactly. And so they're diverting the attention, and it looks like the same game plan that they've been using for basically 75 years. Are other countries a little more approachable with this subject? It seems, it seems that some are. Uh, but one of the things I noticed when I was, I was doing one of the books, um, the Australians approached the United States about um, UFOs. Because they they had been pressed with some of the stuff that Don Quixote had written in his in his books about UFOs, and the Air Force, our Air Force responded to the Australian Air Force. Said, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's a nut. He just can't believe him. He doesn't have any inside information. In today's environment, we know that Quixote was right about 90% of the time, but the Australians backed off because they're getting the information from our guys saying there's nothing to it, and I think that that's harmed. Um, the cooperation of the governments uh, around the world about this. The French seem to be a little bit more open to this. Um, it seems that here and periodically the uh, the British are more open to it. Um, but I think a lot of it is geared to the United States being the leader in the UFO world. And I think it's because we, we have the Roswell thing. And I think that really kind of the key to the whole thing is the Roswell case. And because we have that, that puts us a, a, a step ahead of some of the other other uh, countries in the world. They don't have something that definitive. Fantastic work. Kevin Randall with us. We're going to take calls next hour with Kevin. His blog is uh, linked up at coasttocoastam.com. Lex will have that up there for you. And his books are still available, are you not? Understanding Roswell's the brand new one. Where do you get that book, Kevin? Oh, you can get it on Amazon. You can you you could go there right now and download it on on your Kindle or your uh, various uh, computer devices uh, that way. Um, and and uh, there's a, a com- kind of a companion called Roswell in the 21st Century that takes a, a, a deep dive into uh, some of the things that had gone on prior to that and give you a better perspective on how things developed and understanding Roswell takes you in a little bit different different direction from that. Um, but there's a whole raft of books on UFOs. I think one of the one of the most important cases is the Leveland sightings, which were the uh, objects close to the ground stalling cars and there were witnesses at multiple locations and the Air Force was involved in the investigation and law enforcement. And I think that's a really good solid case. It's been kind of overshadowed by um, the Roswell case. A similar circumstances taking place in France, for example, in 1954 and, and in South America in 1954, that, that there really is no explanation for how that happened other than the extraterrestrials. How is television, radio handling things today? I see them being a little bit more forthright than they used to be. It used to be they were very tongue-in-cheek and uh, had the attitude was I'm too sophisticated to believe in these flying saucers for crying out loud. And it seems today that, that many of them are looking at it um, with a little bit more seriousness. Uh, they, they 
try to get a little bit deeper into the information. Uh, They're not laughing anymore, are they? A lot of them aren't laughing anymore. Some of them still are because, you know, they're too sophisticated. But, but it seems that the, the attitude is changing. And that's, that's a positive step for us. I think it's because we in the UFO community have stepped up our scientific methodology and our investigations, and we're not nearly as credulous as we used to be. We look at the stuff very, very carefully, and we, can, we, we have um, the documentation, and we have the scientific evidence, and we have the witness testimonies, and we're very much more careful about how we put it together. I was talking to James Van Allen a number of years ago, and mm-hmm. I asked him that specific question, what we can do, and he said, Take a look at it from a dispassionate point of view. Don't get, you know, look at it with interest, but don't let your bias uh, carry you along. And I think that was a a good point that he made. Be dispassionate in your research. Look for the truth. Kevin, we're going to come back and take calls with you next on Coast to Coast AM. 